All right, let's take our Bible and turn to the book of Matthew chapter 24. We're going to continue our study, do a very brief review of what we've covered so far on the subject of the second coming of Christ. And again, we have uh, just really scratched the surface as to what there is uh, on this subject in the Scripture. Um, but, but Lord willing, I, I would like to go through... Uh, I, I don't want to go into every detail of uh, the tribulation and those kinds of things, but I would like to go into all the pertinent uh, things about the, the second coming of Christ. And so there's a, a lot more to, to study, but we'll go, we'll go slowly and we'll review because I, I really want us to have the chance to, to uh, kind of assimilate and think upon the things that we read, especially the things that are not only theological but also practical. So in Matthew 24... Uh, we will read, uh, I'm going to read uh, verses 1 down through verse number, uh, we'll stop in verse number 13. Okay, I'm going to read it and then we'll pray. The Bible says, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him to, for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another. That shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be uh, famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Now we talked about the kind of threefold division of Matthew chapter 24. You have what? We, we might call the beginning of sorrows, which describe general conditions that are not specific necessarily to a, a moment in time, but kind of build over the course of time. You have those things, the beginning of sorrows. Then you have what is described at, at verse 9 and following, which, are, uh, which, is, which is, we might call tribulation. Verse 9 says, And then shall they deliver you, up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and shall be, ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do ask you, and if we can boldly ask, that you would bless our time together as we study your word, as we try to focus our mind and our heart on what you have said. I pray that you would teach us and help us to understand and put in our hearts the, uh, especially the hope that we have as a Christian as we go through this, uh, this series on the second coming of Christ. There's so many things here, and I just pray that you would help me as the teacher to truly be a help and a blessing to each person that comes to Sunday school and 
I, I do pray for our class that you would help it increase, uh, not only uh, uh, spiritually and in understanding uh, in the uh, the truths of your word, but also numerically, that you would uh, add to our number. And uh, I thank you for each person that's here uh, and each person that desires to know your word. Bless uh, them according to that desire. Lord, help us, each one of us, to have a greater desire for you and for your word and for the things of God in general. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity uh, to study together in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Matthew 24, uh, we, what is uh, at verse 9 through verse number 13 is, uh, and then in verse 14, of course, uh, I'm sorry, verse 15 is when it kind of transitions to what is called great tribulation. So verses 9 through 13 deal with, uh, also deal with kind of uh, somewhat like general conditions, but they're a little bit more specific as we'll see today. But the general conditions that are mentioned in, uh, down in verse number uh, 5 through verse number uh, 8 are general conditions that we also talked about in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. We will not read that, um, uh, at least not its entirety, but it's uh, definitely a, a reference to perilous times, dangerous times, which is what the word perilous means. I'm going to mention just a couple of things about that because... Uh, it's important for us to know that these general conditions that exist as we approach the time of the coming of the Lord, they, did, they don't start overnight. They start in a, as a gradual kind of building as you get closer and closer and closer to the Lord. That's what Matthew 24 describes, which also agrees with 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And uh, in fact, I will just read these verses just, uh, just to, to kind of stir up our memory. Uh, in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. Okay, so we have this description of the last days. So I think we've, we've seen clearly that what's being described in Matthew 24, the beginning of sorrows, and this overlap. Okay, we're talking about the same period of time as the coming of the Lord nears. That's what the Lord's talking about in Matthew 24. That's what... 2 Timothy is talking about as well, the last days, perilous times. We also talked about how that even though you have these terrible vices and terrible characteristics of society that become more and more prevalent, in the days of Paul were not prevalent yet, because he uses future, but will be, and I would argue are, becoming more and more prevalent in our day, uh, these characteristics, uh, they build, and, and there's, ter there's terrible um, fruit of this that we see all around us, I would argue, but, then, but not without a religious veneer. It is important. It is important for us to understand that the degradation of society will be mixed with religion. That's, it's important for us to know. In fact, when you start to read... 
and we will look at this in detail later. The second, uh, the uh, chapters two and three of Revelation, you have seven letters, uh, the letters to the, the what? The churches. And those are not all commendation letters. There's false doctrine. But as you get toward the end, you start to see a, a real, especially as you get toward Laodicea, you, got, you start to see some real issues, some real problems. So this degradation of society is not without its religious veneer. That's why when we hear people talk about religion, now listen, what I'm going to say is shocking probably a little bit to the, to the southern cultural mindset, which is where we all live. Oftentimes when we hear, I have members in my family that they love to talk about anything religious. Everything religious to them is good. Well, that, that is, that's problematic when you read 2 Timothy 3, verse 5. Because it is religious. They have a form of godliness. That means it looks religious. It looks godly. But it is exactly the opposite of that. It is actually the container that holds all the filth and ungodliness of verses 1 through verse number 4. You see, so that's why we should be a little bit skeptical of religion. Religion is the vehicle for many, many ungodly things because it soothes people's conscience. They live like is described in verses 1 through 4, but then they have their religious veneer and it makes them feel better about themselves. That describes a huge portion of the people around which we live every day. They, don't li- they, they live according to verses 1 through 4, but they, they have the religious veneer of verse 5 on Sunday. And those things are only going to persist even when you get into the tribulation. The time right before the Antichrist. Do you think the Antichrist is a secular figure? Uh Uh-uh. No, he demands worship. Veneration. He has a... Does anybody know off the top of your head? The Antichrist, described as the beast in Revelation, has a companion figure. The false prophet. What is a prophet, right? He is one who preaches the Antichrist. And so there's religion. It's not secular. It's not secular. It's religious. And, and what, as, as that time period approaches, I think, this is, and this is my opinion now, this is my opinion, I think what's going to happen is the secularization, that is the, the kind of, um, I want to say like anti-God, but I don't even mean that. What I mean is the kind of atheistic view that is becoming, that seems to be real prevalent these days, what is going to, I think there's going to be a surprising turn where all these atheists are all of a sudden going to, be, going to be religious. You see hints of it now. You see things with abortion, and you see things with other, uh, with other issues, and you see, you know, you got the whole trans movement. These people are passionate about that with a religious fervor. To them, it is their morality. You know, you talk about climate change or climate hysteria, uh, abortion, the trans movement, a lot of this stuff, this is not just normal political posturing and political viewpoints. This is, they hold to this stuff with a religious mentality. So my personal opinion is the atheism that, is, that has been prevalent, I think is going to be, I think people are going to end up being 
religious about it. They're going to change. Um, now, they may not state it as such, but I think that's going to happen. And so you have this uh, in verses 1 through 5 of 2 Timothy 3. We know that religious conditions will worsen. We read in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, how that there's going to be a falling away before the coming of the Lord. We're, we're going to see that again today. But 2 Thessalonians actually describes a period of time, Paul speaking, a period of time that will exist just before the coming of the Lord because that's the context of that, that, that chapter. And he describes that there must come a falling away. Again, just like I said last week, people who held to the faith but fell away from the faith. That's what the idea means. They were there and they fell away. Okay? Then in uh, 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, Paul speaks of those who will depart from the faith, which is the same thing. Okay? Here's the point, and this is what I was trying to get to but ran out of time last week. <clears throat> As we approach the coming of the Lord, societies will degrade, religion will degrade, Christianity, use the quote quoted loosely, will degrade. It will become more evil, the faith will be <clears throat> surrendered, the truths of God's word will be departed from. So the things I want us to take home from that is this. Number one, given that this is written in the Scripture, as we've, what I've tried to demonstrate to you so that you can see it yourself, this is, these are the conditions that the Lord describes as we approach the coming of Christ. Therefore, we should expect these conditions to worsen. That's what He said will happen, Right? The, we should expect these kinds of conditions are not going to get better. Look, <clears throat> just to speak frankly with you, I am very thankful for the probably millions of babies that are, will not die. Souls of incalculable value, right? Souls and people that God created that are not going to be slaughtered in the womb as a result of the overturning of Roe versus Wade in the Dobbs decision. I'm thankful for that. But one thing is, is sure. We should not be expecting some great salvation coming out of our government turning to God. Because the Lord said that these conditions that we observe are going to increase as Christ's coming approaches. And it's been on this trend a long time, much longer than I've been alive. But this is, so we shouldn't be looking to Washington for salvation. That's, and I know people say that, preachers say that. I agree with it. You know, we shouldn't be looking to that. But as we, as we look at that statement, examine it as compared to God's word, that's, this is the reason. Because evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. Perilous times shall come. These conditions are going to exist when the Lord returns. They must because He said it. So, again, I, I, 
this this idea that some that, that sometimes Christians hold out that you know they're holding out for this grand revival that's going to sweep over the world. I'm just telling you, a grand revival is not the condition that the Lord is going to find the world when He returns. He's told us that, and I, I know that's so negative. And let me hasten to say that does not mean, however, in fact, to the contrary. Phil, can you turn me down just a little bit? I hear a ring. That does not mean, though, that we should just be like, well, there's no use in trying. To the contrary, our church can have a revival, right? I and you can have a revival. We can be revived, and we can draw nigh unto God, because he still says, draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh unto you, right? So the first thing is we should expect these conditions that we observe to persist and increase as the Lord nears, including as it appears on the religious scene, for the Lord has said that. We should expect more people to turn from the truth. But notice what the exhortations in context of these kind of dark predictions, and not predictions so much, prophecies, Notice what the exhortations are. And we covered them already, but just as a reminder. 2 Timothy 3.14. Paul says to Timothy, in that context, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of. 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Everything around, <clears throat> everything around us is changing. The religious scene is changing. Society is changing. The morals are changing. The values are changing. The ethics are changing. The character is changing. There's a hostility toward Christianity, especially not the, not the fake kind, which is, an, is it not a characteristic of the last days? But what, what we want to be our kind, right? The kind, not, it's, not, it's not the right kind because it's our kind, but it's, we, want it, we want to have the right kind, right? Well, that, that, those that believe God's word and stand upon it and state it without qualification are, are increasingly the enemy. And that's just a fact. Even by religious people. Well, those things we should expect to persist. But he's, the Lord says in 2 Thessalonians, stand fast. In that context, he says, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught. So as everything around us, around us changes, in response to those changes that, that rush forward to the coming of the Lord, the Lord says, here's what you need to do. Continue in the things you have learned and stand fast in those things. In other words, all these things in society change. All these things on the religious scene change. But God says, you stay the same. You stay the same as you were taught from the beginning, which for us is not some religious founding, but for us is God's Word, right? Right? Stay with what it says, right? Here's, but what's implied in that is this. The old way is the right way. The old way is the right way. The old truth is the right truth. Because the old truth is the truth that was delivered unto us 
from the beginning, right? And I'm not talking about the beginning of your life or my life, but from the beginning when God gave us his word. The things we believe are the things that God delivered to the Apostle Paul, right? What God delivered to the apostles. Do we believe this or not? Right? Do we believe that the things we believe and teach from God's Word were the original things God, that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to His disciples and to the Apostle Paul? Do we believe that? Yes. God says, hold fast. Stand there. Everything is around us is changing. Morals are changing. What is right, what is wrong is changing. The religious scene is changing. God's answer is, stand there because the old way is the right way. People have in the past, and I, I use this tentatively on purpose, people have in the past described this as old-time religion. But sometimes that's, especially in our day in, in 2022, that term has been misused to some degree because it's been used not to describe the truth, but to other kind of externals that, you know, colors of pews in churches and painting schemes and, and, you know, all these other kind of external things that have nothing to do with the truth. I, hey, I'll just say, when I got married in this building here, the, uh, the pews were, I'll ask Miss, Miss, Miss Betty Thomas, the, the pews were green, right? Sort of green, the kind of greenish yellow, Right? Like, is that a color scheme we would put in our church if we were going to renovate this year? No. Even the people that, that thought it was the greatest thing ever when the church was built and, and voted for whatever, however they did it back then, and they voted for that color scheme, those same people this year would be like, that's ugly, right? That's not old-time religion. It has nothing to do with it. So those kinds of things change. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the Word of God. Because let me, let me, let me tell you something, a dirty little secret. The, little, the, the dirty little secret and the elephant in the room is all the changes we see in style, whether it be music or uh, the way people conduct themselves or the way people dress or, or the, different, the different priorities and values people have, on the outside are just, they're just kind of a, a foot in the door for what's coming after. And what's coming after are changes in the truth. That's where it's going. That's why you see churches that just start, they started to move in style 20 years ago. And those same churches are actually departing from the truth now. There's a movement. Now, what I'm saying, why I'm saying that, that's not an argument that we should, that we should uh, press pause like in 1976 with the way we live, kind of like the, the Amish have done. They, they just pause, they press pause. Their leaders enforced them to press pause in like 18, was it 50 something? And no technology past 1850 something, unless you're selling furniture, is allowed. <laughs> you got to be able to take people's credit cards. No technology past that is allowed. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not what we're talking about here. But it is a fact that what undergirds the way we do things, our music, the way we dress, the way we conduct ourselves, 
What undergirds it is the truth. It should be the truth. I know we sometimes say things that are, uh, that are just what man's ideas are and we call it the truth, but what should undergird all those things in our lives and in our church should be the truth, and that cannot change. And that's why, that's why th- that part of it can't move because that is what is moving in our day. The truth is moving. Now, not, we know it's not moving, but that's, that's what they want to change. The truth. Is it permissible, is it acceptable in the sight of God for a man, a, a, a man and a man to have a relationship? Because churches are welcoming those people these days. What used to be an abomination in the sight of God, which is what the Bible says, is now being accepted. Even in churches that, that, that say they preach the gospel. It is a fact. They don't say anything about that. Now, they wouldn't say it's good or okay necessarily, but they're wavering. They might let those people come in and be members because after all, they're Christians. Are those people Christians? What saith the Scripture? You see what I'm saying? That's one example of the way those things are moving. They are changing. But God says, you need to stay with what I told you from the beginning. Period. Right? The old way is right. That's what we mean when we say old-time religion. It's not right because it's old. It's right because... What God originally told us is still true, right? Now, if you would go back to Matthew 24 again. Let me give you an example of what I'm trying to say in, as far as music in church, for instance, because, you know, that's, that's one of the first things people change whenever they are got an eye for change, right, is the music. They want to change the music. Now, there's nothing, there's nowhere in the Bible that says the Stamps-Baxter era of music in the 1950s is, is the one that God has put a stamp of approval on to sing in churches officially. There's nothing in the Scripture that says that. All right? However, there are scriptural truths underneath the music choices that a church will pick. Right? Those truths don't change. Those truths, and those truths will guide, have guided people in the, ni- in the 1800s about their music choices, and those truths will guide us, if the Lord doesn't return, in 2050 with our music choices. And you know what? Some songs, this will be a shock, but some songs that were written in the last 10 years are good songs. Well, that's not old-time religion. It has nothing to do with old-time religion. It has nothing to do with... It's older, it's better. It's not that. They're, they're consistent with the truths of the Scripture that guide those decisions. You see? But when you remove the truths, which is what's, what's happening as we approach the last days, well, everything else goes, right? Because really the, tr- the, the truths are what are the root of the fruit that is produced later, right? So Matthew chapter 24, verse 9 says this. 
as we as we go from the general conditions to verse uh, to verse nine, where what we're doing is we're entering in, and I'll show you in just a minute. We're entering in this period of time that is described as the time of tribulation, and this time of tribulation is not is not a, a very generalized kind of kind of time. No, there are actually boundaries, scriptural boundaries in time, temporal boundaries to when this time happens on the earth. And we'll get to that another week, but it says this, and they, then, they sh- then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Now, to whom is the Lord speaking? To whom is the Lord speaking? Come on now, come on. He's speaking to the disciples. Did any of the disciples, when you, when you read this, of course, you know the context is the coming of the Lord. And we also know that although the disciples were persecuted, and many of them persecuted to death, the condition in verse number 9, when they're hated of all nations, was not something the disciples experienced. It was not something the disciples experienced. So even though the Lord is speaking to the disciples, He's speaking beyond the disciples too. Okay, He's speaking through the time that is future even to us. All right, but here's the thing: be careful when you read this because you say you says verse nine, they shall deliver you up and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And you you take that and you say that's me, that's me, because that's naturally what the disciples probably thought. But prophetically, the Lord is speaking to the time right before he returns. You know, there have been people who have lived and died and never experienced this. Christians, right? So this is, this is actually a reference to a very specific time. It's, and the reason we know that is because he says, you should be hated of all nations for my namesake. There are very few times in history when that's been true. All nations. All nations. That wasn't even true in the first century. Did you know there were places that Paul went and there was no persecution? Athens is one. Now, they didn't receive the gospel very openly, but that's different than being hated and being persecuted to death. And look in our day. In our day, that's not true because there's many, many places you can go and they won't put you to death for believing, believing in Christ. In fact, that's the exception rather than the rule. Cambodia is a place like that. America is a place like that. You can go to many, many countries and nobody's going to kill you for being a Christian. So this then is a reference to a a specific time in history that is yet future. Let's look at a couple more more passages to show you this. Again, this Matthew chapter 24 overlaps with much of what's in the book of Revelation. Now, let me make a few comments about the book of Revelation because as we continue in our study, we're going to get more and more into it. We're not going to do verse by verse in Revelation, but at least as a, we're going to touch on some verses in there. Revelation is a mystery to a lot of people because people view Revelation as basically like, you know, sometimes people view it as an allegory. And the reason they do that is not because it says to do so or anything like that, is they view Revelation because a lot of the commentaries that were written in the, like the 1800s, they wanted to find meaning for them in their time throughout the book of Revelation. 
And so what they did is they took all these, all these different symbols and all these different events, the moon, the blood, and all, and all these different wars and stuff. And they, of course, they couldn't see those things happening around them, so they allegorized them. They said, well, that, it's not literal. That's actually referring to, you know, the beast is referring to this thing. And, you know, that's how they dealt with it. But that, you know what that came out of? It came out of a tendency to look at every verse of Scripture and think it's talking about you, and it's not. Not every verse of Scripture is talking about me and you. Because the Bible is written for the people that will they'll go in that time as well, right? And, and, and the danger in that, in looking at every verse of Scripture and thinking it's talking about you, is you do things like you take the law of the Old Testament that was given to Israel... And you want to say it's you that he's talking about, but he's not. And that's where a lot of doctrines get messed up. The book of Revelation is a, is a description of the events that happened just before the Lord Jesus Christ returns. In chapter 19, Jesus returns. Right? The book of Revelation is a description of the events leading up to that moment. Now, there are symbols and there are difficulties in the book of Revelation. Nobody denies that. However, it's not intended to be a mystery. It's a revelation, right? The first words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Of, it's not designed to be a mystery. It's designed to be a revelation, okay? Now, look at um, talking about this time of great persecution, Again, this is not generalized persecution. Um, can somebody, uh, let's see, Ari, can you get 2 Timothy 3.12 for me? And everybody else, if you would, turn to Revelation chapter number 6. Revelation chapter 6. Now in Matthew 24, the Lord describes a period of great exceptional persecution in which people that know Christ are persecuted unto death by all nations. That's what's being described, all right? This is different than persecution that has existed in our era, even from the book of Acts to our time. It's different. Ari, can you read that? That's a general statement of persecution. We, as Christians, will suffer persecution. That's a generalized statement. But what's in Matthew 24 is different. It is an extreme kind of persecution that spans the globe. All right? Chapter 6 of Revelation, verse 9, says this, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I, heard, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. The scene in heaven, martyrs. Now, if you read the context of Revelation, when you get to chapter 6, we're already in the midst of that period of tribulation. This is Matthew 24, where we are in Matthew 24. This, it's the overlapping time period, okay? 
Notice the persecution being described. Look at chapter 7, verse 9. It says this, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people. That means they're Gentiles, they're not just Jews. And tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And crowd with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne, and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What? I love these parts of Revelation, because God tells us who they are. You see these different groups and you're like, who is this? What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in the temple, in His temple. And He that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them, and they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. These are not just people that just generalized people that had died and now are in heaven. No. These are people that came out of great tribulation. Again, the time period we're looking at in Matthew 24. Look at chapter 13. Just a couple more verses. We'll be finished since we're so close to it. Chapter 13, verse 7. Talking about the beast who is the Antichrist. Mentioned several places in the scripture, but again... Just before the coming of the Lord, he says this, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, beast, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Notice that. All that dwell. Look at chapter 15, verse 2. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand upon the sea of glass, having the harps of God. Again, these are people that came out of tribulation. The context makes that clear. Persecuted over that mark. Persecuted over that all nations persecution that we read in Matthew 24. And lastly... Let's look at chapter 20, verse 4. This is right at the coming of the Lord. It says this, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. Now, who are these people? Are these Christians throughout the ages? No. These are not persecuted Christians that, that died as martyrs in the 14th century. No. How do you know that? And which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. This is the martyrs of the tribulation 
who are martyred as a result of their unwillingness to align with the Antichrist, okay? What this is describing, in summary, is during the time right before the Lord returns, there will be, it is yet future to us, a period of great persecution in which people will be killed for their faith in Christ. And that means that there will be people who believe in Christ in the tribulation. A lot of people that have a problem with the rapture, they say, well, if the rapture happens, there won't be any Christians. No, 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 no. You misunderstand. There will be people who believe in Christ and will be persecuted unto death the world over. And this describes a period just before the Lord returns, which to us is yet future, but is important to our understanding of, this is the key, to our understanding of where we are right now. It's very important for us to understand where we are right now because that's really what's probably most important to us. Do I have to look forward to a time of persecution where, my, where, where you, there will be no, no place safe on earth? Is that what's in front of me? That's the questions we want to answer when we study the coming of the Lord. That's important because that affects the way we live every day. All right, let's pray.